from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and good evening. Welcome to Burning Issue. I'm your host, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, the COVID-19 crisis and social distancing measures have caused deep concerns about the impact on women and girls. We are bombarded with news headlines every day that another woman was killed in intimate partner violence or a girl child raped by someone she knows and left for dead. These headlines point to the increased risk women face in these relationships under lockdown conditions. The fear is that they are trapped inside inside their homes with their abusers, unable to leave, escape or reach out for help. Then, of course, there is the scourge of sexual violence in our society. In the most recent release of the crime statistics before Parliament, the South African Police Service revealed that during the reporting period April 2019, to March 2020, there were 53,293 sexual offences. And of course, those are the ones that were reported to the police. And these included rape, sexual assault and other crimes. So as COVID-19 lockdown exacerbated the abuse of women, why is gender-based violence a pandemic on its own? That's our burning issue tonight. Of course, we have been celebrating around the country, Women and Women's Day and the achievements of women, but also we constantly remain conscious, rather, of the struggles that women face every year around about this time and also, of course, later in the year when we look at the 16 days of activism. We have a number of guests this, this evening. Before we break for Ishai will go straight to our first guest and she is Reverend June Dolly Major who has been fighting for justice after she survived a sexual assault allegedly by another priest in 2002. Reverend June went on a hunger strike last month to raise awareness of the situation and on Women's Day she and other activists stage a protest outside the house of, a- of our Anglican Archbishop Tabo Makoba in Bishop's Court. So now we have June on the line. June, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening and thank you so much for having me. June, your story has been well documented. It's also been shared on social media. You've shared your story. Why was it so important for you to make sure that you made your story of sexual assault public? It was a difficult journey because I was silenced for 18 years and I broke the silence um, while I spoke to the bishop about it and for 18 years they basically silenced me to protect the institution, the name of the church, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa. However, um, it's tough when you've been gay to live with the consequences thereof and it's a lifetime sentence. And so it's difficult breaking the silence and difficult going public with your story because I'm not sure if you've been following my story. You're just victimized and villainized all over again. So to me, it was breaking the fear, the fear of being victimized, the fear of what people are going to say and how they alienate you before you could actually break the silence. And the other reason why I broke the silence, because we, we are faced with so much gender-based violence and femicide. So many women are being raped, children are being raped, abused and killed. And patriarchy, the system covers it up. 
and protects the perpetrator. And and so you, you not only rape once, but the system comes and rapes you all over again and your perpetrator walks free and you live with the consequences thereof. So it was important for me as a priest to break the silence. You know, I minister to so many people women and children who've been through this process, but yet I keep silence myself. So it was important for me to break that silence. And that's why, yeah, that's why I've done it. Mm -hmm. It must have been quite challenging, though, because the church is such a big institution and you are faced, of course, with colleagues and other people in the church who might want to, if I can say, cover up the faults of the church. They are covering it up in actual fact because... I don't know if you've seen the latest of Barney Pagiana and what he had stated and said of me. And I'm not sure if you've seen the post yesterday. Um, no, but you know, the thing is, um, I don't also want to, because I'm a journalist, I don't want to make too many allegations against someone who's not here on the show to to necessarily yeah. you know like defend themselves but i mean yeah. i want to get your personal story and i'm going to share it because you have been very brave of course to yeah. challenge the church which is like i said this big institution you know well no exactly it's a big institution and as you know it's it's male-led and no offense to men but it is men who rape the women, and and it's wonderful that you you're not offending. Doing this interview. Let me just let me just get something right from the get go. You're not offending anyone by stating facts. Okay. You know, you know, <laughs> we know that men in this country are the problem. Men are yeah. the perpetrators yeah. of most of the violence we see against women and girls in this country. So don't apologize. So, so what? So I'll speak from the background of the church because that's what I know. So what the church does is that, you know, it's male-orientated, male-headed. Um, the woman is told what you can and what you cannot do, that you need to be subservient. And all these things eventually play into that culture. And and so we see it in the silencing of our women. Um, and again, as recent as, as yesterday, when I was told on a public post on Facebook that the church should tell me to go to hell and that, I am satanic and diabolic. And so you get things like this from church leaders who are telling you this and saying basically that they don't dispute, they're not saying that maybe I wasn't raped, but they also don't think that it's right for me to go after the perpetrator. So these are the things you get from leadership within the church, and they do it very publicly. And so it's really, so you ask yourself, if the church is not a safe space where I can actually go and report my rape, then the very same leaders are the ones then persecuting you and silencing you and questioning you as to why you speaking up against it then, then where are you safe where do you go to and i mean you were already in a position of if i can say some kind of power given that yes. you were a leader so yes. what still of people who feel disempowered because they are just exactly. Kind of, mm, mm-hmm. exactly and not every woman is going to go and why should women go to such extreme as doing a hunger strike why must I go to such an extreme as hanging panties up at the bishop's court um, to get a point across and say, listen to us, we need justice. You know, stop covering up for the perpetrators and listen to the victim. And and it's so hard because I've received endless messages from men and women alike. Men also are raped. 
And it's even harder for men to break the silence because of, again, you're being stigmatized. And we've seen that recently in the papers as well. Because if you do, you get called derogatory names. And society, we are all to blame because you tell our boys, tigers don't cry, don't show emotion if you're a sissy, and other names you get called. So you grow up very aggressive. And then we ask ourselves, why are we sitting with this problem? Mm-hmm. So you say that in the church, I mean, for example, how would women and where would women then find a safe space within the church if they have faced a, an alleged uh, situation of uh, whether it's sexual misconduct or any form of abuse, really? If you're a woman, then where do you find those safe spaces in the church if you've had such a tough uphill battle just convincing people of your truth? Sorry, um, yeah. no, so, so basically, no, I, okay, again, I'm speaking from only from my own experience in the Anglican Church of Southern Africa. I can't speak for the other denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, so myself personally, I don't feel it a safe space because it's not only women who's been sexually abused and raped, and, but it has been boys as well who've been sodomized and it's been covered up for decades. So where do you find a safe space? And and even the process which they have, they suggested I do the safe churches process. I do not feel safe in doing it. And after the whole outcry yesterday on Facebook and social media, again by a very upstanding person within the church, I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I'm so, just looking now at some of the feedback that are coming through from our listeners. Yes, somebody who's actually following your story. Listener 7850 says, give us female justices. Give us females justice. I was raped too. I'm crying because of June's beautiful topic. That's feedback that we just got now from one of our no, listeners. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the story of so many women. And, and you know, it, I've done it at a huge sacrifice for myself personally. I've literally lost everything. I've honestly lost every material possession. I don't even have a job. I'm struggling even to find a job. So, but then I get messages from people like just the one that, read, that you just spoke of now. And I get inbox messages and saying, please don't stop because you're doing it for me. You're doing it for my child. One mother was crying when she phoned me and she said, my six-year-old child was raped, but I'm too afraid to go public with state and victimize her mm-hmm. and rip her to pieces, and I cannot do yeah. that. June, you know, we've got a minute left. I'd like people to be able to connect with you and reach out okay, with you. Perfect. How do they do that? Is it social media? How would you prefer to be in touch yes. with people? Because this is just one person, and, you know, there are probably others listening who feel alone and who feel that they also need someone to talk to. Well, social media, and I can give you my WhatsApp number as well. If you are comfortable you've, giving down yeah, on the radio, you've you got can, my number, the I, number you're calling on. Yeah, oh eight two seven five seven seven three six eight. Yes. Yeah. June, let me just, um, we're going to have to leave it at that because we're going to break now for our prayer. So thank you okay. so much for joining you're us. You're welcome. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. We pick up the conversation around gender-based violence and how the pandemic, how the COVID-19 pandemic is really revealing the double trauma placed on women during this time. Women, particularly from poor and marginalized communities, are bearing the brunt of the hardships experienced during this lockdown period. But there's also the added burden of intimate partner violence. 
The string of femicides during the pandemic has gripped South Africa, catalyzing protests and causing the hashtag Stop Killing Women to trend on social media. Now added to that, in the most recent release of the crime statistics before Parliament, and this is what I mentioned earlier as well, the South African Police Service revealed that during the reporting period April 2019 to March 2020, there were over 53,000 sexual offences, and of course those are the ones that have been reported, and it included rape, sexual assault, and attempted sexual assault, and also contact sexual assault. Now to unpack this further is Sarki Bartman Centre Director Bernadine Basher, and she's also a member of the Western Cape Women's Shelter Movement, and we'll also have Mara Glenny, founder and director of the Tears Foundation in Johannesburg. Good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening. What a pleasure to be on the platform so that we can share together looking for a way forward. Yeah, we've. I've actually had you on the show, you know. You have indeed. Yeah. Okay. Look, I mean, let's get into the We've now seen the statistics, or rather we've seen, heard the statistics from the police. What's happening on the ground? Um, let's start with Bernadine. Bernadine, we know about this Saiki Bartman Center. Of course, we know the work you do here in Cape Town. What are you seeing and hearing on the ground? Good evening, Yesleet. Thank you for having me. Um, it's always a pleasure to be on the show. Um, so we are seeing increased levels of gender-based violence on the ground. Um, we're seeing an increased amount of women trying to access shelters. Um, we can't deny that there has been a, a, a significant increase in the rates of GBV during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, uh, your center would be closed at the moment or is it open? No, it's absolutely open. We never closed at all. So we, we consider the essential services. So we've been open all along. Wow. And, and what's it been like? I mean, have women been coming to the centre since day one of lockdown? Yes. So in the Western Cape, we are um, working with a two-tiered admission process. So essentially for the first two weeks, once a woman gets into a shelter, she go into a stage one shelter for health monitoring and support and thereafter should come into a stage two shelter like the Saki Bartman Center for a four month period. So we've had women coming in consistently all the way through the lock- lockdown um, and yes, we are, we are seeing um, at the moment what we're seeing is women coming in with, hor- with increasingly um, serious um, injuries um, and horrific personal violations um, that is that is what's happening on the ground at the moment at the center okay and in Johannesburg Mara give us an idea of what's happening on the ground well uh, first of all I must say that um, it's a delight to be sharing the platform with the Sarki Bartman Center because they provide an invaluable service and are always willing to help people if they've got a space so I need to just commend them for their excellent service um, on the ground, um, we actually do counselling across the whole of South Africa. We don't offer the same facilities at the South Department. We give, uh, refer people to counselling. But we have found that there's an increased demand for protection orders. And that is coupled with the fact that for um, the, the first uh, two and a half to three months of the uh, lockdown period, 
Unfortunately, the courts were not operating, so women were not able to get protection orders, which has taken a vulnerable area of our population, women and children, and made the law inaccessible to them. In addition to that, the increased pressures of not having funding in households, where we've gone from a, 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 a relatively high unemployment rate to an exorbitant unemployment rates with people being retrenched and businesses closing, I'm afraid we don't see it getting better in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. So in some cases we also know that women are already trapped in relationships. Does it mean that being trapped at home during the pandemic has maybe even made them feel more disempowered and in fact made their abusers extend their power and control over victims? So I'd like to say that uh, we actually found in the first eight weeks of the lockdown, many, many people experienced a thing called triggering. Triggering is when you recall bad memories. You might have been abused as a child or in a past marriage, and that was 20 years ago. And in the lockdown uh, situation where they felt absolutely... uh, out to the elements. In other words, they didn't know where they were going to be. Were they going to get coronavirus? Were they going to get restrenched? And that vulnerability triggered their uh, trauma. So lots of our cases were dealing with past trauma. I mean, as we go forward, we really don't see it getting any better because we are actually a country that has the best rules on the statutes in the world or amongst the best. But we have quite honestly, the least appetite to carry them out. And I'm afraid our government has really let us down because constantly we read about the abuse abuse of women and children on the front page of the newspaper and it's reported as sensational news, rather that we have a societal ill that needs to be dealt like with a disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the details, the gruesome details are in the headline as opposed to unpacking the lack of support for women in a more, if I can say, uh, a way which empowers a woman. Um, Your um, input, uh, Bernadine, in terms of, you know, what this has meant for women who may already feel trapped. Absolutely, and I agree completely with Mara. So what we were very concerned about at the beginning of the lockdown, we were looking at what was happening internationally with rates of GBV, um, and we were seeing these considerable increases and significant increases in other countries. There was an increase of 33% in gender-based violence rates in in China. I think there was a 30% increase in um, France, and we were getting ourselves prepared for a a similar increase um, in GBV rates. Considering that we are, um, we are, we have five times the um, the global rate of GBV in South Africa, which is which is incredible. Um, so we just didn't see the, the amount of women that we thought we would see accessing services, and we started to get very concerned about why we weren't seeing more, you know, more women coming in and wanting to get into shelters or approaching the GBV command centre helpline for assistance. Um, and we were trying to see what exactly were the um, inefficiencies or the gaps in the systems that we had set up because we were just concerned that we, the women weren't, weren't approaching us. What we found 
out and obviously this would have to later be um, completely verified by way of research that we haven't received as yet was a lot of women weren't able to access services because number one they were obviously confined with their abusers especially during the hard lockdown in level five um, number two they may not have had access to transportation to take them through to um, either a shelter and to, or to the police um, services they also may not have had access to things like airtime or um, data in order to call the gender-based violence command center and or a shelter so there were very many um, factors that were paying into the fact that women were sitting at home and and completely um, at peril um, with a perpetrator breathing behind their neck, um, which obviously was very concerning for us. So as the National Shelter Movement, what we did was we put in place a um, safety plan for women that were confined with their abusers, and just with tips and, and tel- telephone numbers that they could call that would help them that if they had to get out, that they could get out as soon as possible. So these were the concerns that we had. And of course, they were manifested as soon as the hard lockdown was eased a little bit and we went into um, um, easier levels and um, the ban of al- on alcohol sales was actually dropped we saw a huge surge in numbers yes. of women that were looking to come into 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 shelters um, so that was um, quite significant obviously we we know that alcohol abuse is something that um, uh, drives uh, gender-based violence um, and worsens it. So, yes, so that that's what we were seeing on the ground is, is these women that were disempowered, that were lacking access to services or lacking ways to get to services. And on top of that, were without their traditional support structures like friends and family uh, church members, um, that the, those kind of support structures that would have advised them, you know, get out, go and see somebody, go, go to the Saki Bartman Center or go to Tears, they will help you. So this is a situation that we anticipate that when we were sitting with in, in the lockdown period, obviously it has eased somewhat in terms of the, the hard lockdown and access to services, um, but we are seeing an increase in numbers. Mm-hmm. It sounds horrible. It sounds like you're being held hostage by someone who's intent on killing you. Absolutely. I'm sure that very, very many women found themselves in that, those situations. I have spoken to very many survivors during the um, the lockdown who have been trying to get out and have been sitting on the phone with them, whether it's by WhatsApp and or um, orderly, and trying to assist them to come up with a, with a safety plan and to get them to a point where I can send um, somebody to pick them up. So we've had very many um, of those situations that are happening where women are literally tiptoeing on eggshells trying to get out and putting things in place that the first gap that they get to actually get out of the house they they flee Mm -hmm. now i just quickly want to go to our whatsapp line and one of our listeners listener 0115 has said um are you saying and this is in a direct question to me are you saying all men are raping women it is very unprofessional of you i just want to clarify that when i had spoken to my first guest on the show she wanted to apologize to men saying that um she said something along the lines of i'm sorry to say this but men are um violent and then i said you don't have to apologize we know it's a fact that men are violent towards women i did not say that all men are raping women but somebody's doing it and it's men. 
So the sooner we just acknowledge that fact instead of men trying to be all yeah but it's not all men just sit down have a seat acknowledge that there's a problem and ask yourself how you can be part of the solution now president cyril ramaphosa has um, announced a comprehensive plan to tackle gender-based violence almost a year ago what's the progress on that i mean government is notorious you know for making big slogans and spending lots of money on fanfare but not delivering um, so I'm really curious to hear from your side. Has there been anything, any information that you've gathered about what the president's uh, comprehensive plan has achieved? Well, I can only, and as you made a comment in your own right, I can only comment in my right. I'm a member of an organization called Shukamisa, which is a co, or Tears is an, a member, and it's a coalition of 70 organizations uh, who, who stand against rape and abuse and work in that field in South Africa. And unfortunately, I'd like to say that um, in the course of last year, I think it was um, October, I'm not sure of the exact month, the president announced that a great deal of funding would be put into gender-based violence. To my knowledge, I did send out a questionnaire. To my knowledge, nobody's received any funding. So, number one, you can make any any announcements anywhere unless you fund NGOs, be they shelters like Sarki Bartman, be they places that do referrals like us, help people to get their protection orders. We all need funding. So, not only has industry and businesses that support NGOs been affected by the coronavirus, so has the funding. So number one, funding is a very big problem. It remains a big problem and the promises were not met. Secondly, there is um, a national strategic plan that's underway and in circulation for discussion, but um, we've had a few national strategic plans in our country over the past eight or nine years. So as you correctly said, government does have a way of going slowly and it's going out there for discussion. From my personal point of view, from Tia's point of view, we are very, very disappointed with the help that rape and abuse facilities nationwide have been given. We don't believe that they've been supported as they could. If they paid even half the attention to rape and abuse that they've paid to coronavirus, we would have halved the problem. And on that note, I want to go back to the figure that you quoted of 53,000 cases. We don't have an accurate figure, so the figures are what we believe. But we believe that only one in 20 cases are reported. So can you imagine how much violence and rape is going on in our country? Mm-hmm. So we underreported. People are afraid of the police. They don't get the services that they want. There's some excellent police officers that I'm proud to call friend, but there are also a lot of untrained people. And until we start training the police to deal with this crisis, like we have put an emphasis on help workers for the coronavirus, I'm afraid we will never bring this uh, crisis to an end. Bernadine, have you heard anything about the president's uh comprehensive plan yes um i agree 100 percent with mara yes we have a new strategic plan that has has been passed by my cabinet 
Um, we're busy, you know, it's been busy workshop across the country. Um, there was talk at the joint sitting of um, both Houses of Parliament at um, October last year that there would be amount of um, money that would be released to fight GBV um, nationally. And as we sit here at this moment in time, there has been very little, if anything at all, that on the ground has been felt from the the ongoing promises that funds will be released in order to fight GBV. Um, we haven't seen, uh, bar some PPE that has been, and, and very little of it, that might I just say, some PPE that has been um, donated by the government to shelters. Um, we haven't seen anything. At one stage last year, we were told that by March this year, the funding that went through the CARA funding would be um, be dispersed during March. So far within the Cape Town area, or the Western Cape area, should I say rather, I know of two shelters that haven't even received their funding as yet, but are actually in the process of doing that evaluation, whereas all of us have actually um, applied for that funding. So, no, I, I agree totally. We are... Um, sitting with our backs against the wall as shelters. We are not only sitting with with a situation where we have increased expenses like PPE, like um, health support that's needed for clients and staff members, um, like transport that that is now needed because of the pandemic. But over and above that, we have a decreased ability to actually fundraise. And we're sitting in an economic crisis which means that most of our traditional funders are not going to be able to fund us because they need to now put their money towards the nuts and bolts of their businesses. So, yes, it is a dire day for for any NGO in South Africa. As we saw over the weekend, there was a report in the national newspapers that um, – some of the provinces, um, the old age homes specifically, but also some shoulders, hadn't received funding since March. This cannot carry on. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see a, a, a situation where shelters are going to be forced to close their doors. Um, you're going to see a situation where wonderful organizations like Tears are going to be looking at, at exactly the same fate. Government needs to stop talking about GBVs. They need to stand up and they need to put their money in their pockets and they need to start paying the NGOs that carry out actually what is their job and actually empower us to do what we need to do on the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much to Bernadine from the Sarki Bartman Center. She's the director there and also Mara from the Tears Foundation all the way in Johannesburg. That's all we have time for because we have to go for a break. But thank you so much, ladies, for joining us on the show. Thank, Thank you. you, but Thanks can I please us. mention one thing? I know I'm flipping in here, but I do want to, that the Sarki Bartman Center had a fire and they need help. So I want to appeal to all the listeners in the Cape, if you can help them in any way, they need your help. Please reach out to them. Bernadine, can you confirm this, please? Absolutely. We had a fire just over two months ago. Um, we're still trying to get the repairs done. It has meant that we've had to move our ladies out of our residence and into our Just hall. very quickly tell us your street address so that Capetonians know, those who do not know, so that I they know where you are. I can tell you that we are, we're, in, we're in Athlone, yeah. um, but I'll give you the, the number and you can call us. It's 21 5287 and I will make the necessary arrangements but we, we're in Clipkantine Road. Okay, thank you so much and we wish you all the best with the repairs. Thank you. The Burning Issue 
We're now going to go and take an international view. We've got Amnesty International's Jennifer Wells joining us now on the show. And she is a campaigner at the organization, at least the South African branch of Amnesty International. And they've started a campaign aimed towards uh, creating awareness and also, of course, talking about gender-based violence this month. Jennifer will join us now to tell us more about what they are doing. Jennifer, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to chat. Jennifer, for our listeners who do not know what Amnesty International is, can you please tell us what is Amnesty International? Yeah, sure. So we're uh, we're an international um, human rights organization, one of the biggest uh, international NGOs, human rights ones in the world, um, where we do uh, campaigning, research and advocacy into different human rights issues around the world. Um, So we've got offices in about 74 or maybe more offices, countries around the world, um, where we campaign on things from education to health, to freedom of expression, to LGBTI rights, refugee and asylum rights, justice, um, equality, and everything like that. Okay. So it's essentially some of the major social injustices that we see around us. Yes, yes. And so here in South Africa, um, we focus on more of the kind of economic, social and cultural rights um, things. So things like gender-based violence, education, um, the right to water, climate change, refugee and asylum seeker rights, Mm -hmm. um, and also mining affected communities. Yeah. This evening we are focusing, of course, on gender-based violence. Tell us about the campaign that you have launched as Amnesty International. Yeah, so we've launched um, a campaign called the GBV Interrupter Campaign. And what it's really doing is calling for people to stand up and take a pledge against gender-based violence um, and be an interrupter. So it's about if you hear derogatory conversations, if you witness uh, violence or hear it or even just hear about um, conversations that kind of contribute to this negative uh, just presence of violence against women um, to really stand up and interrupt it, take a stand, say I'm not going to tolerate this Um, it's also about educating your peers um, on what behaviour is and isn't okay talking to your colleagues, talking to family members, having those kind of difficult conversations, so we're asking people to take this pledge, um, which is a long one that I won't repeat now, and just saying that you are going to become a GBV interrupter um, and really begin this journey that we need to, as a nation, go on to ending gender-based violence in our country. Now, I have to say that some people might find it very difficult to be an interrupter. Some people might yeah. even find that they very livelihoods or the uh, safety might come at risk. I mean, my first guest on the show this evening was June. And uh, June, in fact, used to be employed by the Anglican Church as a priest. She is now unemployed Mm -hmm. because she spoke up about an alleged sexual assault that she encountered within the church. So how does this campaign, besides just having a slogan or a hashtag or being on social media, how does this campaign really empower people to become an interrupter? 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It is so hard when this culture of violence is so embedded in our in our country's history, and it comes from just a you know a legacy of of pain and suffering. Um, but the way that the campaign is designed is that it's trying to make it really kind of accessible. So we've got some educational tools that you can take, um, some courses that you'll go on. Um, and really, it's about creating a space where it's not just about, you know, survivors and perpetrators. It's about trying to have these conversations, empowering survivors of gender-based violence to know, and as cliche as it sounds, that they aren't alone, but that there are people, everyday people, who are now talking about this, wanting to learn about it, wanting to have those conversations, wanting to finally in their life just say, this, is, this has to stop. This is enough. Um, and the campaign really kind of speaks to that. And specifically, you know, we're not just saying it's men that have to do this. It's kind of everyone in whether um, you're a young person, an old person, male, female, um, just really becoming a part of this move towards just making people understand that this isn't okay and it can't continue. So how does one get involved? Our listeners might be interested to become an interrupter. Sure. That's brilliant if they are, and I really would encourage people to. Um, the best way to do it is to visit our website, um, which can be on your laptop or your phone, which is www.amnesty.org.za. Um, and there will be on, on our campaign page a big kind of uh, sign and pointer there to what you can do and different things that you can do. So, yeah, we would really encourage um, people to get involved because, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, the recent um, SAPS report came out, which kind of said that, you know, in the last year, sexual offences have gone up by 1.7% and sexual assault has increased by 4.2%. So this problem is only getting worse. Um, and we just, it can't continue. So we really now is the time to, to take a stand. So go on our website uh, or follow us on Instagram or Twitter and there'll be um, directions to how you can become involved that way. I also just want to reiterate the safety aspect. I mean, for example, if you are a young person in a community and you want to speak out against a perpetrator who might be known to others and who might even have a certain mm -hmm. level of, can I say, power, I mean, mm -hmm. is there advice for somebody like that? You know, it is a tricky one and obviously it's a reality that we're dealing with in these kind of situations. I mean, I wouldn't push anyone to do something that they're not, uncom not comfortable with, but I think... I mean, if you could maybe speak towards, uh, you know, from the campaign perspective, I, 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 I welcome your personal view, but I'd like mm -hmm. to know how this campaign kind of ensures that people follow the right steps, if you know what I mean, because it could become something where somebody actually endangers their life if they don't have the right, if they don't know how to go about it, because it's one thing to want to stand up and speak out, but I think people also need to be empowered in ways that don't put their lives in danger. Sure. And I think one of the things is that Amnesty creates, you know, you're not an individual. Once you take an action with Amnesty, you become part of this movement. And that's what Amnesty International is. It's a movement of people. And so in taking a stand and following the steps that will be explained, you 
are, are walking into a community and a support structure that will be there. There will be other people that will be taking the same steps as you um, that can kind of guide you in this process. Um, and so I would say that what, what makes it okay is the support from other people that will be doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Has a campaign like this been uh, done before elsewhere and what has the results been like? I don't know of a campaign specifically like this, asking people to take a pledge um, and a specific pledge like this. But I know that recently in the, in the last couple of days, there have been some fantastic campaigns coming out from other organizations. Um, I know that there's one from Power. Uh, there's one from First for Women. Um Obviously, it's Women's Month, so it's a very hot topic. But I know that there have been some really powerful and fantastic campaigns uh, that other people are doing, which I would also just encourage people to really take a look at, invest your time in coming to to kind of educate yourself on them too. And there are also fantastic partners uh, and other NGOs that are working on, on these types of issues. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It seems also that there's a culture of silence, you know, around uh, abuse and and gender-based violence. And almost, especially in societies where power structures are entrenched and patriarchal systems are so entrenched, there seems to be almost an unspoken acceptance, you know, which silences victims. Um, Is this campaign considering those contexts and how does it work within those contexts? Absolutely. And I think... You know, our kind of statistics are known around the world for our gender-based violence things. I mean, people all around the world are quoting our statistics, and it's, it is kind of almost unique to South Africa, and I think it speaks to this deeply embedded culture of violence um, and the violence being so bad that it kind of makes people be silent, which is so sad, and I think it also links to huge failings in our criminal justice system. Um, that people, survivors, don't feel safe enough to report their crimes or even come forward. And so that silence is also what we're wanting to break by calling on the Minister of Police to make sure that investigations are done thoroughly and in a constitutional manner and that police officers are trained uh, professionally and equipped with what they need for when survivors do come forward. I would also say that we need longer sentences for perpetrators of gender-based violence because the kind of sentencing that we're seeing at the moment is just not enough to deter people from this. So that culture of silence is built into the failings of the criminal justice system. And so this campaign is also calling on that. And and the specific things that we're calling on the Minister of Police to just ensure that there's no more impunity for cases of GBV that there's no more corruption amongst police. Um, As I said, that police are trained to sensitively um, and objectively investigate incidents of gender-based violence and that they follow due processes. And I think that once that starts to improve um, and survivors can see the support that they have from people online and offline, hopefully that culture of silence will start to be broken. Mm-hmm. Can you please share with us, lastly, again, the website where people can participate in the campaign? Absolutely. So it's www.amnesty.org.za. Mm-hmm. And any closing, any other remarks, anything that you feel you want to share with our listeners before you go? Yeah, I just wanted to say to just 
Ah, now is the time, really, as I, as I said before, that to just take up, take up the space because this can't be tolerated. You know, we're calling on government to make sure that urgent action um, happens, to make sure that the statistics don't continue to rise because our women of South Africa are not just statistics. Mm-hmm. We are women, we are humans, and we're not being treated like them at this moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, I mean, so, so just sorry, I just, this question just came to my mind because mm. as a woman in South Africa, right, I mean, yes. you... Tell us your personal feelings and thoughts around what you're seeing at the moment. Well, not just now in this moment, but just for like the last while. Who knows how long? I mean, every week on week, we've just seen headline after headline. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it is so disheartening and especially to, you know, to do the job that I do. It's kind of seeing this every day and just reading, going through the news and just being bombarded by testimony after testimony of these survivors that have gone through such awful things. It is so disheartening and it makes me angry that the government is not doing enough to make sure that this doesn't continue to happen. And it makes me angry when I hear men just saying derogatory things about women because that's where it starts you know those silly misogynistic jokes are where it begins and it turns into and and builds into the system of just hate and violence and disrespect and just inequality is really what it is for women so yeah it makes me angry it makes me sad um, and it makes me just want to encourage people to do something about it even more mm-hmm. Jennifer thank you so much for joining us this evening on Burning Issue we do wish you all the best thank you for telling us about the campaign sure well thank you so much for, that, for having me and I look forward to hopefully chatting again soon fantastic that there was Jennifer Wells she's from Amnesty International an organization that is this month, month launched a campaign where they want to encourage people to become interrupters they want people to shake things up and speak out against gender-based violence Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamal. And this evening, we are unpacking the crisis of gender-based violence in South Africa. And the statistics are frightening. Close to 3,000 women are murdered in South Africa every year. Let me say that again. Close to 3,000 women are murdered in South Africa every year. That's right here in this country around us. This means a woman is murdered roughly every three hours in our country and about 110 women are raped every day. About one in three South African women experience abuse by an intimate partner in their lifetime. This morning we picked up an interesting article looking at gender-based violence as a pandemic and the importance of a collective response to this problem. Now, Professor Frances Peterson writes that this Women's Month, the focus regrettably 
but rightfully falls on gender-based violence during lockdown. But unlike COVID-19, the gender-based violence pandemic already has an effective treatment. And our schools and institutions of higher learning have a vital role to play in administering it. Now, Professor Francis is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Free State and he joins us now. Good evening, Professor, and welcome to Burning Issue. Uh, good evening, Yazid, and good evening to your listeners. So, when President Cyril Ramaphosa says that gender-based violence is a pandemic, what exactly does this mean? Well, he actually meant, uh, in terms of my interpretation, that this is, a, this is a profound and a widespread problem in the country. We need to come up with an urgent way of dealing with that. And that is actually what I saw behind those words. But in the article that I actually wrote, I'm trying to contrast um, this pandemic as uh, articulated by the president and often called in world terms the shadow pandemic. I contrasted that to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, and I really indicate that uh, although when we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, there had been, and rightfully so, a, an immediate response. Uh, there was a high level of urgency, whereas the pandemic on gender-based violence, um, we talked about it, and we keep on talking about it, but the level of urgency is not necessarily there. So I think that is what he meant, but in terms of treating that, in terms of dealing with that, I can't see the same level of urgency uh, and that sort of resemblance with the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? I mean, is it because the COVID is uh, something maybe that is, you know, uh, more, if I can say, I won't say more manageable, but maybe it's it's somehow a little bit more easier? Is it because gender-based violence is just too massive in this a pro- a problem in this country? I, you see, I don't necessarily think that's the case. You know, with respect to COVID-19, there had been a, um, a, 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 a sort of real working together because we saw that as a common challenge. Uh, and therefore, society uh, mobilized together. Society together with government, uh, private sector, industry, commerce, the economy, uh, they mobilized it to deal with that. And hence, the different... Uh, um, strategies to be effectively dealing with the COVID-19. I think that, uh, um, and, and, and from my perspective, I don't think the same level of commitment towards gender-based violence is articulated across the complete society, across, the, across leaders in uh, the different sectors of government, private sector, industry, commerce, uh, um, civil society. And I think we need to raise it up uh, to that level of of, 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 of of common urgency. And and, and for that, uh, government uh, uh, shouldn't just only talk about, because you can, one way you can legislate, you can come up with legislation, but I do believe that there need to be a much more uh, systematic approach in dealing with this pandemic. There need to be a framework, and, and, I, and I'm actually applauding the... Um, the Ministry of, of Higher Education and Training, uh, the Minister Blade Samande um, uh, launched a, a policy framework on gender-based violence, specifically for your um, technic- uh, for your post-school education and training sector, 
Uh, now, I'll, I can elaborate a little bit on the framework, but I do believe that that is important. And then I think we need to, uh, to take ownership, and that ownership needs to come back to our values. And in the article, I make uh, the, the argument that uh, respect uh, should be at the pinnacle of that. And, and, and how do we bring that across? Um, so for me, gender-based violence is really a product of unequal power relations. And violence is a means of reproducing um, those power relations. And we need to speak that, speak to that fundamentally. But to be able to do that, uh, you need to have a mobilization in the same way as we have mobilized the country in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, you also speak about a... a you speak about herd solidarity to guide our youth away from gender-based violence. Can you elaborate on that concept, please, the concept of herd solidarity? Yeah, so, so that effectively is, is what I've been, been stating a little bit earlier, is that mobilization uh, um, so, so that, so that we, we, we work together towards a common outcome, and, that, and that's the solidarity that I'm talking about. And we effectively need to, you know, if we talk about herd solidarity, it needs to be in the same direction. Uh, we shouldn't talk past one another or opposite in opposite directions. It should be in the same direction. It should be mobilizing every effort that we can. Um, and I think uh, the role, uh, and if I can just please briefly talk about the, the framework, because the framework to a certain extent guides the sort of herd solidarity that I referring to in the in the article, because I think a framework they need to be an awareness, a prevention and awareness component, and then there is an enabling environment component in terms of uh, um, what are the sort of legislation, what are the policies, who's accountable, how do we monitor these things, uh, and what do we actually put in place? Uh, we need to invest um, some money in that too to be able to create an enabling environment. And then that uh, there's the support and assistance. So if if we investigate and uh, complaints, uh, uh, um, how do we support the victims, uh, uh, the survivors? Uh, what are the action against the perpetrators if they have to find guilty? And that's the framework that I'm talking about. And that framework need to be seen by uh, um, everyone in society, the sort of the herd solidarity, that that is the direction that we want to go in, into. And the pinnacle of that framework would be the value of what I call respect. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go for a quick ad break. Do stay with us, uh, Francis, uh, Professor, and then what we'll do is we'll go a bit more into the article and answer some more questions. Welcome back to Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. We still have on the line Professor Francis Peterson. He's the Vice Chancellor of the University of the Free State and he's written an article. The title is Herd Solidarity, a Vaccine for Our Gender-Based Violence Pandemic. Uh, the article is interesting because it likens or it talks about two pandemics that we are facing at the moment. And it's so important that we begin 
to connect the dots in our society because we've heard from our previous guests that women who are already sitting in abusive situations and homes where abuse is the norm have experienced much more and much worse abuse now that under under lockdown because they've been trapped with the abuser. I mean, the statistics in South Africa is insane. I've read it out earlier. Close to 3,000 women are murdered in South Africa every year. And I'm quoting from the Herd Solidarity article. And um, Professor Francis writes, this means a woman is murdered roughly every three hours in our country and about 110 women are raped every day. So let me ask you a more personal question. As a male, I'm listening to your voice. I'm looking at your name. It sounds like you are a man. Can I say that? Is that correct in saying? <laughs> yes, yes, you are correct. Why was it important for you to add your voice to the many voices that are now speaking up against gender-based violence? I think, first of all, um, it's important uh, and, um, that we talk about this pandemic in general. Um, you know, for me, as a leader at the university, where we have uh, uh, young people, uh, students, uh, many female students, uh, but gender-based violence is not only against females, you know, it's also against other genders and also the LBQDR community. Uh, but in this particular case, if we talk about females, um, it also talk about staff, uh, um, and it's important for males. Uh, so I'm, I've been talking, I've been writing this uh, from a perspective, first of all, uh, also as a leader uh, um, uh, um, in, 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 in the university community, uh, um, and then secondly, as a man, as, as a man, uh, um, to because men, I believe, need to talk more, need to speak out. Uh, um, so to say that this is just unacceptable, uh, um, this is uh, working against human rights, uh, uh, um, the right of any individual, and therefore it can't be right that, uh, um, that, that females, if I use females in this particular context, uh, um, has been um, either harassed, uh, uh, um, uh, sexually abused, uh, emotionally abused uh, in relationships, that can't be right. So I do believe that as a leader, and as a man, we need to speak out more because this is definitely not acceptable in society. I mean, when we talk about murder, you know, it's whether it's a man or a woman being murdered, it's a crime. It's something that degrades the very life and fabric of our society. When we have this kind of killing and, you know, this kind of behavior where we disrespect or disregard human life. So... I don't understand sometimes why some men would s take offense to the fact that it's being highlighted as men are doing this and men are doing that. They even then want to start talking about, but women also abuse men. We do respect and we do understand rather that it happens that women can also abuse men, but we're not seeing 3,000 men being killed by women every year. What do you make of the response that men have, you know, when they want to sort of claim that they are not part of the problem and it's not them and it's maybe not even all men? Yeah. Um, I think, you, see, you know, you can listen to these sort of uh, statements and claims by men. And, and, and for me, it's important that what is needed to resolve 
this, partic- this particular widespread and profound problem in South Africa, this pandemic. And therefore, it's surely not uh, to be defensive, it's surely not to keep quiet, uh, um, and therefore to use platforms uh, to be able to talk about about this is so crucial. So, so if you have people who say, well, it's not me, uh, that doesn't really matter. Uh, if your voice could be added to make sure that we talk about this particular issue, that we, uh, that we contribute to make it uh, up there, uh, lifting the profile, so that people uh, um, doesn't remain whether they are responsible for it or not, and I'm talking about men now specifically, uh, um, that we say, well, we want to be part of the solution. And, and therefore, I would uh, um, uh, speak to those men and say, well, uh, don't argue from a defensive perspective. You might be right if you're saying that. But for me, argue rather, how can we be part of the solution? And that, for me, is where the focus should lie. Mm-hmm. Any last words before we say goodnight to you, Professor? No, no, I, I, I just wanted to, I'm just hoping that um, our full society, and, I, and, I, and I'm talking about society at large, together with government, um, should start to work together. Uh, you know, there are so, so wonderful, so, such a lot of wonderful programs that private sector, industry and commerce has designed in relation to gender-based violence. There are NGOs and in the civic society so, uh, um, uh, um, that, that have got these wonderful programs. Government is also doing their best. But let us all get together and let us, when we have this conversation in a couple of years again, that we say, well, we actually have resolved the issue of gender-based violence in South Africa. And that is for the better. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening on Burning Issue. Professor, we say good night to you. Thank you, Jazid, and, and good night to the listeners as well. Thank you. We want to end off the show on a positive note with a local community upliftment initiative which has been called upon to take action against the high numbers of gender-based violence cases on the Cape Flats. It's called the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative and was founded in 2012 by the American actor and social activist Forrest Whitaker. He's actually an award-winning actor, a very famous guy. So the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative is a non-governmental organization that operates in countries and regions impacted by violence and poverty. Dr. Charles Chagunda, the South African country coordinator for the Development Initiative, chats to us now about what they are doing. Good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening and thanks for having me. So... Tell us, tell our listeners what exactly you are doing here in South Africa, particularly on the issue around gender-based violence. Thank you so much. You know, I have to give first credit to RCS and BN, BNP Paribas for being the sponsor for the initiative that the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative is doing in the Cape Club. So basically, the organization provides the training for free 
in general in terms of those who want to start small businesses who follow that training but also give them a CD capital to start the business. We also provide for free ICT training. As you might know that most of the activities nowadays they depend on the cell phone or the computer. And then finally we provide training in peace building, peacemaking and conflict resolution. So this is the last one, that's what we are busy rolling out in the communities after being called upon because of this excessive uh, increase in gender-based violence. So exactly how and where does it happen? Uh, we, we do it in two ways. Uh, because the center is actually in Bridgetown, so other training mm, do take place at the center. But uh, when we have got a request from the community, because this is a magnitude of uh, people, including the elderly, sometimes the disabled, so we make it easier to operate, to conduct the workshop in their communities. For example, we just finished one in Nyanga, where uh, it is 50 community members, both male and female, the young, the middle-aged, and the elderly, participated in the training. So we take it to the community where it's needed. And we have just currently started a, a second workshop, which is happening in Kualanga, and the same mode, the same, to- same topics with the same um, agenda of empowering them about the peacemaking, building, have creative ways of resolving conflicts, not going to violence, and mainly also conscientizing, conscientizing them about the gender-based violence and the human basic rights that all women and children they have to benefit, but currently they are being denied by a few ugly uh, angry people, especially men, you know, that we are in the forefront of uh, abusing, taking away the human rights that uh, these vulnerable groups, but yet very important members of the household and the community, women, they are encountering. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you kill a woman, you are killing the future of South Africa. That's exactly. really what it is. Exactly. Actually, you, you are right. But now I think we are not even killing only the future, even the current moment. If you kill a woman who stands by the household when we men sometimes disappear, run away, but women stick to that. They stick to make sure children are fed, are taken well of well, and then they are even educated. They don't run away from responsibility than most of men do, and you kill them. What do you expect? As you are saying, killing the future, but even if they now, we are killing it because we are taking away a critical member of the family. Mm-hmm. A critical member. And this member. is why the take Peace and Development Initiative, they say, no, we can partner with the communities that are also willing, that don't want to tolerate this gender-based violence and the femicide that has already killed so many women in our communities, not, not alone in our kids' flats, that people live in fear. Women keep live in fear. They can't just go to the shop. They cannot just go to a mosque or a church to pray. They're afraid. But they're afraid even at home where they have to find peace. Because of some of us that don't think in a humane way, in a way that we have to respect human rights, 
of these women. And do you work with men? And how do you work with men? Thank you so much for that. That's a critical question because we work with both both men and women. Because as I, I was just saying that most of the times this instance of gender-based violence is men that are in the forefront, that is men that perpetuate it. So we work with both. And whenever we're working with case studies, we bring case studies so that men can take the role of women here, how they're doing, and vice versa, and share the ideas and share the pain. In so doing, we want to shape in terms of what you, you feel, you see, what other people live by each and every day. So we also take men in that women can hear the perspective of men and vice versa as we try to find a way forward. What would be a better way of taking this community forward? But basically, I also want you to say, what are the causes? What drives a man to do this? And what does he want to achieve? So I wanted to share those, if those who are participating, they can have some answers, and how do we find a better way of resolving those conflicts. So yes, work with men so that we can have a balanced way, but also we don't leave anyone behind if we have to find a sustainable solution. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we recognize the other men that are also survivors of, of gender-based violence. And they cannot come out because of the community, because of stigma. We also encourage them to come out and speak to us so that we can speak in the presence of both men and women while we want to find a sustainable solution to both um, gender. In the work that you are doing on the Cape Flats with men and women, what are the causes? What is driving a lot of the violence that we are seeing? You know, it's massive. It's various, various reasons. Sometimes people that contribute, you see, what they think on behalf of the perpetrator, what normally causes them. So, but when we speak, sometimes when we are lucky that men are brave enough that I was also part of the problem. I've been abusing my wife. I've been abusing my sister, you know. I've been beating the water, but what are the reasons? And some they could share reasons that it might be um, too general for others, which is the lack of income in the household. Okay, the wait, let me just understand income, how, yeah, how, how does not having money make you a violent person? That's where we try to work with them, because for them in their thinking, that's why we interact with them in terms of but is that a solution? Because for them to be a man is to be able to provide for the household. And once I've lost that, that some that were sharing with us in the current lockdown, where they were retrenched, and the, the solution was to make a woman a punch ball, we said, but how can that be a solution? So they would say that in that moment, that's my thinking, in that moment, I feel better that I've done this. Only I regret afterwards. But that sounds stupid. I'm sorry, but that sounds completely stupid. I don't have money, so I don't feel like a man. And to make myself feel like a man, I have to beat a woman. That sounds completely illogical. I think they're lying to you. You you are right. You are right. That's why when you interact with that, because we are not, for instance, we wanted to transform 
No, this destructive solution to the problems that they see to constructive one. So we don't want, even though deep down, you know, but that's a total lie. That's nonsense, you know. But we want them to be ambassadors. We want them to go back to many that think like them and transform them to resolve conflicts in a, a constructive way. So that's how we, we, we try to turn it well, without interrogating much in terms of really in the way you are, you think this is a solution. And that solution has to be found from the partner that needs your protection. So okay. Okay. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm personally not buying the argument that a lack of imp- that not having a job makes you a violent, abusive person towards someone else. Because you could also just go beat another man if that's the case. Because yeah. a woman can't fight back, and maybe you'll be stronger if you could beat another man. I don't know. Maybe that can make you feel more like a man. The other thing, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just not getting the logic of that. But thank you for sharing that. Are there un, any other drivers of what you are getting and hearing from on the ground, on the Cape Flats? Any other drivers of this extreme violence and murder that we are seeing against women and girl children here on the Cape Flats in our very city? You, you, you know, to tell the truth... Since we started engaging this, you must we always tell me the truth, eh? Valid mm-hmm. We haven't found any valid reason why should women be subjected to 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 any death, to to this hostility. We, nothing. You find all oh, such like lame excuses, no. but because our purpose is try to to build a better society, to transform these lame excuses. And open their eyes that they have to see the reality. That's that this is whether how big or small their cabinet of thinking like that, it's not a solution at all. So some of the reasons will say, which is of, of course the patriarchy and the lack of income, they simulate more or less in the same way. But others just psychological problems. Others is disappointment that they find outside they will come and dissolve it inside. You know, some say unresolved issues when they grew up, they were subjected to such type of treatment in their own household and have learned from their parents this is a better way of resolving the, 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 the conflict. So, some is come from what they have learned from the household, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why in our training, we also do with the youth and the young ones so that as they grow up, we also go to schools so that as children grow up, they have to know what are better ways of resolving conflicts when conflicts arise. So your work is also about breaking the cycle of violence in communities? Definitely, definitely, because we do it in various ways, as I said. In community, we go to the community, but we also go to schools where kids from those households go and learn, but we also bring the youth to the center we support the transportation for them to come to the center. We feed them, and then we engage them in this activity. And at the end of this year, we'll be almost more than 40. They'll be graduating youth from various townships in the Cape Flat. Where upon the graduation, we want them to go back and do the same training that they've gone through. So they form clubs of peace. They form groups of the young ones, and start the same training 
of making them aware the importance of respecting human rights, the importance of knowing what peace is and the inner peace, what it does to you, and also on the whole that the, the existence of violence, it drives away development. And once it drives away development, it actually minimizes the economic opportunities that people can have in a community where they can earn an income. So we do it in these various ways. Just try to produce as many peace-loving people as we can in our Cape Flats area. And how can anybody get involved? Do they just come to the center? Do they need to sign up somewhere? You know, there might be a young person listening right now or the family of a young person, and they might think, you know, it would be good to get him and him or her involved in this kind of workshop. Thank you so much. I think now that we are forming a partnership with you, we can also use you for all those listeners that are listening to you. That's a better way of approaching us. They can approach you. Because when 152 Parental Road in Bridgetown, that they can just come to the center. Sorry, what is the address in Bridgetown again, please? 152, 152. Yeah. Parental Road. Mm-hmm. Bridgetown, just down the Vengade Mall. Okay. So they can do that. They can also send me an email, which is chance, all in small letters, C-H-A-N-C-E. Okay at wpdi.org mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wpdi.org yeah. I just quickly want to share a WhatsApp message that has just come through listener okay. 1018 says when women are breadwinners men feel degraded and become batterers when they are not employed it happens so that is a perspective that one of our listeners has just shared that men feel when they feel degraded, says the listener. When 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 men feel degraded, says the listener. When women are the breadwinners in the household, that is an opinion shared by listener one o one eight. Yeah, you know, thanks so much for that because you know this is a problem that we're also trying to educate the communities. Times have changed. Anyone in a household would be a breadwinner, and you, there's no need for you to feel inferior. Because we have to share responsibilities, both a man and a woman, or a husband and a wife. So this needs education. This needs to change. That's why concertization is very important. That people, we have to be aware of this. Either or, we have to support our children, and we have to do all what we can to generate an income. So if my wife is a breadwinner, so I have to be glad and support her. Because she's not supporting somebody's household, somebody's children. She's supporting my household, our children in the family. So that's one part that we focus on in educating and making the community aware of these responsibilities versus the stereotype of patriarchal thinking that a man has to be a breadwinner. And if you're not a breadwinner, you are like something is taken away from you, you have to resolve into violence. Gone are those days, gone are those um, olden days that people should think like that. That's part of the education and the awareness that uh, we are making people benefit from, empower them. Mm -hmm. Do you have any closing remarks before we sign off? Yes. You know, the request is that uh, communities, individuals, 
no one on his or her own can institute peace and even development. We need to hold hands together. So you and us, feel free that we're going to approach us and we're going to come to you so that together we can change our community, so that together our children can walk freely to school, can play comfortably without looking around, where am I going to be victimized? So it's a call that we are here to partner with you. The We Take a Peace and Development Initiative is putting in resources supported by RCS and DNP Paribas to make sure that the, the peace building, peacemaking and development initiatives can reach every corner of the Cape Flat. Mm-hmm. Well, Chance, thank you so much for sharing with us the information about the organization, the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative, founded in 2012 by U.S. actor and social activist Forrest Whitaker. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I'm going to conclude this evening's show. We have talked to a number of people who work in the sector, the gender-based violence sector, and looking, of course, at solutions, how we as a community and a society, a country at large, can respond to this problem. I'll be back, inshallah, next week. Do enjoy the rest of your evening. From myself, Yazid Kamaldin, Assalamu alaikum.